This episode of the Coin World Podcast is sponsored by Numismatic Auctions. Numismatic Auctions is proud to announce auction sale number 66, featuring the Robert H. Colgrove and Grand Blanc collections, along with many other fine consignments. With nearly 3,300 lots total of rare U.S., Canadian, ancient, and world coins, paper, and exonumia, this auction has something for everyone. View the auction sale number 66 catalog at numismaticauctionsllc.com. Featured items of this sale include over a thousand lots of U.S. coins, paper, and exonumia, plus Lincoln memorabilia, rare Chinese ancient to republic and modern coins, paper and coinage dies, a fantastic offering of Russian coins, paper money, and metals, and a specialized high-grade offering of hundreds of rare condor tokens and world exonumia. Absentee bids are now being accepted through January 31, 2022. Internet bidding closes February 7th through 11th, 2022. Visit Numismatic Auctions LLC to view the auction lots and get more information. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. As I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coin World Podcast here in 2022. We're glad you're along for this latest edition. I'm Larry Jewett. And I'm Jeff Stark. And boy, you know, I'm fresh off of the New York International. We're going to talk about that and the rip-roaring start to the year. But we couldn't be here without our sponsors. So we want to thank Numismatic Auctions, LLC. Boy, do they have a massive sale coming up uh, in just a few weeks. It was uh, quite a treat to look at the auction catalog there. So we thank them for that. We're really excited about the way the year's starting, and I think that sale is going to continue it. Uh, what are your thoughts, Larry? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, this was really great news to hear about the support we're getting from Numismatic Auctions out of Michigan. And this latest sale that they have coming up, I mean, I went onto the website, uh, numismaticauctionsllc.com, took a look at the catalog, and I love the way they broke it down because you basically have four sections that are divided up, and you can download the PDFs of those catalogs. In fact, you know, the absentee bidding is closing up very soon within the next couple of weeks. So you want to make sure you get in on that. But when you're looking at uh, nearly 3,300 lots, some of these lots containing multiple coins, there's, uh, there's a couple of collections in there. The Robert H. Colgrove collection was an interesting collection, as well as the Grand Blanc collection, which had a lot of gold in there, too. There was so much to uh, to look at, so much to uh, see the possibilities because it runs the gamut. This is not just a coin auction. It's not just a paper money auction. It's not just a U.S. auction. It's a little bit of everything right there. And that's where it really got exciting because as you scroll down through the PDFs, it was interesting to see what's next. And I love the way they were organized, especially looking at, like, for the example, for the U.S., the way it was done with my denomination made it so much easier from not interested in a half cent. I could scroll, scroll on down. If I was uh, not in particular, if the years were there, I could skip over. I mean, look for the 1895 Morgan, not there, but they had O's and S's and, and others. But then you get into, 
the years and you keep going on that, there's a 20 cent coin in there that I'm still trying to get. So, uh, you know, word to the wise, I could be a competitor if I'm out against something you're out for. But there's a lot to look at there. And I recommend you taking the time to do just exactly that. Absolutely. I already uh, circled a few lots I'm considering. And, you know, this is uh, Steve Davis, who runs, uh, owns the firm. I've cooperated with him, written about their auctions for, for years now, and actually several years ago went and visited the office and um, did some lot viewing. And he always comes up with some cool stuff that, uh, you know, discovery pieces and and think like one of them years ago was a um, like a uh, an engraved piece that may have been like a Civil War dog tag. I, I didn't see that this time, but there's always something fun in there. And it's, uh, you know, regardless of what you collect, there's something neat in there. So check that out. Don't want to belabor the point. It was, it's a neat, uh, neat sale and neat stuff. And uh, we do appreciate him as well. And speaking of auctions, big, big news right now. Uh, you know, I'm back from New York where there were just some rip roaring auctions. The folks I talked to, you know, from an ancient coin standpoint, both what I heard on the show floor and what I saw people commenting online is uh, there's just some crazy prices being realized right now, which is, you know, it's good news for a consigner. It's bad news for somebody who's trying to jump in on a particular market segment. You know, is this an overheated market because people want to have, uh, something tangible while they think, you know, the value of the dollars is shifting, you know, is, is this, things will always cool off, right? There's rises and falls. The question is, you know, how do you rectify this is, you know, some folks were saying, oh, you know, the, the sellers are going to get, um, a rude awakening when they go to sell this because these are people that have more money than, you know, market knowledge. And, and, the reality is that, you know, that may be true, but there will be a, a shaking out and a, a settling. So, you know, there's certainly folks who timed it right for selling <laughs> their collection should be laughing all the way to the bank, but there are still some items to be had, fun to be had. We saw, I, I had uh, Dmitry Markov told me that, you know, the market for Russian material is coming back. And that's a positive in the sense that uh, the market was really hot 10 plus years ago. There was just so much activity at this show uh, about every dealer I spoke with and, and all my time on the floor at booths and, and, you know, I, people would stop at the table. Do you have any Chinese? Do you have any Russian? Do you have any Philippines? Those seem to be the three most active segments. And actually, uh, there was a fun story. I asked Daniel if I could tell this story. I did get permission. Daniel Wyman, who's out of Cannon Beach, Oregon, and he actually used to be out of St. Louis. I met him years ago at, uh, I think, the Central States show and when it was in St. Louis here in 2007, I want to say. But he's, he's out in Oregon now, and he was right across from the Coin World booth, where I, I won't say I spent a lot of time there. I stopped in and, and whatever, but I was out on the floor a lot. I also made a was part of a, a presentation on Friday for two hours. So, you know, you go into some of these events and talking to folks and, and learning from them. But he pointed to a Latin American coin with a uh, Isaac Rudman 
pedigree. Isaac Rudman is a well-known named collector and expert in a specific area of Latin American numismatics. And he said, Hey, these two guys here, the younger guys, I don't remember their names. They're really sharp. They're really with it. In fact, one of them here picked up that Rudman coin and started talking about it. And he said, you know, do you know who Rudman is? And, and Wyman said, yeah, you know, that's a, that's a famous name. That's a, you know, he said, hold on, whoops out his phone. And 30 seconds later, a minute later, hands the phone to uh, Dan and, and who's on the other end, but Isaac Rudman. (laughs) And I thought, how, how cool is that? You know, the market is so, the world is so small these days. The market is such that a specialist like that can connect the dealer to the guy whose name's on the label insert of the coin. You know, Rudman's still collecting, and uh, according to Dan, and uh, just, you know, specializing maybe in Cuban stuff now, among other things. You can only have that at like a coin show, and maybe even only at New York, where it's such a such an array of folks, lots of, I heard lots of Russian being spoken, several folks from Russia or, or of Russian heritage, uh, several different, I mean, you just walk the halls and you hear multiple languages. You see people from all over, you know, you're blocks away from the United Nations for real. And this is the United Nations of numismatics uh, because it's a melting pot. It's so many voices present. And the New York show is certainly has a a flavor to it of academic and highbrow and expensive. But there were several dealers uh, from whom I found a few pieces for my collection. And, and you know, they had stuff, 2 to $20. I mean, yeah, they had more expensive stuff, but they had boxes of, of more affordable $50, under, $100 and under pieces. So there was no shortage of activity, even at that end. It's always fun to go. It, it had special meaning. I think this time, the first New York show after being away two years, it felt a little different. Uh, obviously, wearing a mask, which that's uh, annoying, but you get used to it. And um, there were a couple small number of of tables that were were empty. The folks didn't end up making it. I, you know, I heard a lot of folks from uh, overseas were concerned about having to quarantine upon their return home, you know, so if they come here and then they return home, they might have to quarantine. So they didn't come, but my gosh, there were so many folks, Switzerland, England, lots of other places, Germany, Europe, different places that were set up there, Italy, um, Spain. So it felt as normal as it could and there were so many folks who were just so happy to be there and uh, count me among them. Yeah, it was great that you were able to make that trip. A little concerned about you getting back because of the weather toward the end of that there. But, uh, you know, we, we got a little cold down here in Florida, too. But uh, you were talking about auctions earlier on. And speaking of Florida, of course, the situation didn't allow for the uh, heritage auction to take place at the fun show itself. But it did take place. And I was uh, watching with interest. One of the particular notes, we'd featured it at coinworld.com and in the uh, pages of CoinWorld magazine, and that was the $1,000 1882 gold certificate that was uh, graded uh, extra, extremely fine, 40, and just kind of watch and see how that is. Not surprisingly, it was the leading attraction, 
as it brought home $456,000. There were four notes that were in the six-figure range. So overall, I'd say that was a pretty successful run there, kind of keeping an eye on things as they go along here in the auction world, because like it or not, sometimes they kind of set the values on some things. So it's just kind of interesting for us to see how that's going right there. And we'll continue to keep our fingers on the pulse so that we can make a uh, fair representation. But you know, it's a big world and we have had the opportunity to have several guests on here that are making headway in their particular fields, numismatically or otherwise. I've got to tell a quick story here because uh, we like to keep up with what our guests are up to. And I had the occasion recently to reach out to our uh, previous guest. That was Joe Cronin. And uh, Joe Cronin uh, helped me out a little bit on a, uh, on a question that I had. So I asked Joe about this particular coin and uh, asked him how things were going. And he said to us, uh, the book, his book, you know, Mint Errors to Die For. We mentioned he had a second edition. Well, that second edition sold out. He's reported that sales have been great, and now there is going to be a third edition of Mint Errors to Die For, and Joe is hoping to have that ready for us in August of 2022. So congratulations, Joe. Great job on that. I know it's a labor of love, certainly, but uh, we like to hear good news from our past guests. Well, one of our past guests made national headlines, actually, in the world of sports, and that, of course, was our Kansas City collector, Nick Allegretti, who was just on podcast a few episodes back. Now, Nick, as you may remember, is an offensive lineman for the Kansas City Chiefs. Kansas City Chiefs are in the NFL playoff game. They had a game on uh, this past Sunday night against the Pittsburgh Steelers. And Nick is uh, a lineman, so he doesn't get the headlines too much. But Nick was uh, the guy that they call upon when they get in a goal line situation. They put him in as what they call a tackle eligible. He wears number 73. You'll hear the referees say number 73 is reported as eligible. Well, the Kansas City Chiefs on Fridays usually have what they call pat-and-go drills, where they bring the offensive lineman in and throw passes to him to see who can catch. Well, apparently Nick can catch. He had the assignment of blocking uh, T.J. Watt. He got rid of T.J. Watt. He uh, waddled into the end zone, and um, Patrick Mahomes hit him with a touchdown pass. So the dream of all offensive linemen, and I know Nick was looking forward to this too, is to catch a touchdown pass, but he did his in a playoff game. Congratulations, numismatist Nick Allegretti. Job well done as Kansas City won that and moves on in the playoffs. Always good to hear how our guests and our friends of the podcast are doing in their work. Yeah, how cool is that? I mean, there's um, kids growing up, you dream of hitting a home run in the World Series or catching a, as you say, a touchdown in a playoff game or Super Bowl would, you know, would be the ultimate. Uh, so, you know, how how neat is that? And um, it's coin collector. So we, we love to hear that. There are there are a handful of well-known, famous collectors in the past and, and present, whether that's Nicole Kidman and uh, Ancients and Jack Black, who, uh, you know, had a famous uh, segment on uh, a Conan uh, O'Brien show talking about crazy coins and different things. And it's fun to have a, a little bit of a, a you know superstar sheen affixed to the hobby of kings and the king of hobbies. Well, even those superstars, they do get attention in, in big ways. But to me, really, the, you know, the heart and soul of this is the collector who started out, who got the love for it, has the true love for it, and keeps that love 
through thick and thin, who uh, stays with it through, uh, you know, the growing up and, and moving on. You know, this could have started off as something as simple as returning glass bottles back in the uh, back in the day as a child. We've had a few letters about that. And now just the idea of it's not as easy as it used to be to find these treasures floating around out there. But there are still some that you stumble upon occasionally. I had the uh, opportunity to spend some time with uh, David Lasseau down at the uh, fun show, and we were talking about the state quarters, and we were talking about the the eternal quest to find a 2019 or 2020 W, and uh, he and I are both looking and looking strongly, and as it stands right now, I certainly hope David caught up. I'm ahead one to nothing, so that's, um, uh, you know, we're not even, I mean, there are people out there, I've seen Facebook posts about people who found 19 of them. God love them. I mean, I'm going to still keep looking even if I do find 19, but it's just the idea that we the common people, are really the backbone of this hobby. It's great to have people with high recognition, but the common people, the folks who have a nine-to-five job and come home and spend some time after dinner with their hobby, the people who uh, attend the, the regional shows that go out there and spend a few hours on a Saturday or a Sunday, who attend their club meetings and support their club in a leadership position or in an active position. So many times in clubs I've been involved with in racing and cars and all that is you'll have a membership role of 100 people, but you have eight people doing all the work. And I think that fi that's find its way in a lot of the clubs. And if you're one of those eight people, thank you for it. If you're one of those 92, what's holding you up? Get out there and do that. So yeah. <laughs> soapbox has been kicked to the corner. That's the end of that one. So what you got well, for me? Well, it, you know, it, it's uh, funny you mentioned that because – at the New York show, I was able to meet uh, a collector who's actually doing something really fun and um, working on a business venture that will allow her to make numismatic history of her own. And uh, this is uh, someone by the name of Katie Bishop. She came to the media roundtable that was held on the Friday of the show and um uh, I got to meet her after, and she told me about how she is op working to open a coffee shop in Brooklyn, where she lives, and she is going to have tokens made to be used at the coffee shop. And she enlisted Michael Cabrin, that's K-A-B-R-I-N, Cabrin of N M K Bars, B-A-R-Z, uh, Michael Cabrin of MK Bars to commission this design to promote the coffee shop, to tie it in. And, you know, during our discussion, I, I thought about this. You know, Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House back in the 80s, and he's famously said that all politics is local and really all numismatics is local. You know, and, and here is somebody who is a Coin World podcast listener. Thank you, Katie. Uh, great to meet you. But, you know, she is taking that mantra that all all coin collecting, all numismatics is local and really living it out. So it was fun to see that project. It was um, neat to hear people that are, you know, there's just a, there's a whole movement of folks who are involved in making their own designs and, and issuing limited mintage art bars and sculptures and things uh, from silver and, and otherwise. And it, it's just, 
you know, the hobby is where you find it and it's and how you want to participate. I, you know, I say it all the time and say it's, it's part of the intro, Big Ten hobby, but uh, there's a place for everybody, no matter what you want to do. And uh, so many folks are so welcoming and helpful and, and, you know, willing to share their knowledge, understanding that, um, you know, it takes a village, so to speak, as long as you're not the village idiot, uh, you know, people cooperate, get along. And uh, it, it was just, um, it was fun to see that reiterating that, you know, yeah, everybody out there was focused on the million dollar coins that were crossing the block in the evening. But uh, it's something as simple as looking for a token, as, as Katie and I talked about, uh, a token issued in Brooklyn, say, 150 years ago, and finding the address on the token and, and going to that address today and looking at what does it look like? And this token was used here 150 years ago, and where has it been? And, you know, there's so many touch points to this. So, again, uh, it was really fun. I appreciate and You know, anybody, anybody out there who's a listener and uh, comes up to us and, and talks to us about their interest, their passion, we do appreciate it. And uh, don't take the opportunity to hear that uh, lightly. Yeah, and I think the idea, the tokens, especially when uh, I picked up a couple of wooden nickels at the uh, fun show, but the idea of the the fact that they have addresses on them, those are the ones that interest me, the ones that have some kind of identification, some kind of correlation to a place or to a place name are the ones that are interesting. I've seen, you know, more than my share of the ones that just say one unit or whatever, and, uh, you know, those are like, okay, they could be from anywhere but just the idea of, you know, the history that you could trace upon this. And that's the same thing with some of these banknotes that I see. And it's going to be a while before I get involved in that. But trying to find some from your hometown or where you went to college or where somebody, uh, you know, is from and trying to find some because back in the day when the banknotes had the location on them and not just Federal Reserve notes, that makes it uh, so much easier and so much more interesting and obviously something to keep an eye on when you get into that. But you mentioned the Big Ten hobby. Fact of the matter is, it's getting bigger all the time. There's with more creativity and more uh, development that's being done, it's getting bigger and bigger. It's not all just about circulating currency. It's not all about circulating coinage. It's not all about cashless society. It's about other ways that you can be involved in this. And sometimes you make your own way in this game. So uh, kudos to those who are uh, trying to expand the hobby and, and put a little personal touch on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I don't know that there's much more to be said about the New York show and my experience there. Uh, we, um, you know, it, it, like I say, it was great to be back and uh, got to see some folks and, and all that. Um, hopefully, you know, over the next few months, you know, we have, uh, marches, uh, Baltimore and the ANA spring show or winter show, if you will. Um, you know, we're, we're moving toward, uh, more shows and more in-person gatherings and sharing the hobby that way. You know, it's exciting. It's exciting to be, uh, looking on the upside and the bright side of things. And by all means, if you happen to be attending a show where you see the folks from Coin World and Coin World Plus, stop by. Love to, uh, if we, Jeff and I happen to be there, we'd love to talk to you. And uh, certainly we want to hear from you. We encourage you to send us uh, what you have, so your suggestions, your ideas, uh, ways that you think that uh, 
you can you know make a uh, suggestion that will help this podcast. We talked about how much variety there can be out there. We've gotten a couple of emails recently that have uh, kind of led us down that path to think about more ideas that are coming up. Month of February is coming up. A lot of possible themes going to be coming out of that. And of course, we're just going to keep thinking of ideas, thinking of ways that we can continue to help you along in your particular state here as you make your way through this hobby. And uh, it's kind of strange because, you know, you never know what direction it's going to turn. It could be something that you weren't interested in a year ago, you're interested in now. So that's why we do the variety that we do to give you something to go back and go, I want to check on that again. Let's follow up on that and see what that was all about. So that's pretty neat. And uh, shows in February, that reminds me, the uh, there's a big three-day show here in St. Louis. I need to um, look at, uh, get my time off request to go on Friday, the February 11th. And then it also goes Saturday, the 12th and Sunday, the 13th. Though I imagine, you know, Sunday's probably a more quiet day as, as shows go, just because folks, you know, folks will be coming in a day or two early with setup the day before and all that. And, but uh, yeah, you know, if, if you're, if you're able to come to the area um, I'm looking to spend some time at that show and uh, you know, see what, uh, see what goodies await. But speaking of goodies awaiting, we should not keep you waiting any longer to do our little foray into numismatic history and coin world history and, and all that. So, uh, you know, in looking at the history of this time period, I was intrigued to discover something based on Fred Reed's column, the week that was that ran back in 2008. Now, I'm not sure if Fred missed the mark a little bit. You know, the caveat is I've done some research in addition to try to confirm what he said. And instead of just picking one date, I'm going to pick two. So Fred's column talks about uh, how on January 20. Second, I think it was no January 23rd that in 1980 that gold and silver hit record highs on the U.S. market. Gold at $850 an ounce, silver at $50.35 an ounce. So I see I see competing reports suggesting that January 18th was the actual high, $50.35. I see. 4945 uh i think what this gets to 4870 um is what it closed at and what there's silver is sold in us dollars on different exchanges there's the london fixed price there's the comex that's i think the chicago merc and so if you're looking for a specific high it was somewhere in there between January 18th and January 23rd, 1980, depending on the exchange, whether that was the Chicago Merck, the New York close, the London price. You know, you have intraday trading. That's the high that it reached during the day 
versus what it closed the day at. So for instance, as, as we record this, silver has hit a high of almost uh, 2372. And it, right now it's about 2350, but it was as low as 2281. So, you know, it's about a dollar swing in there through, during the day. And, um, you know, so these numbers reflect different points in the market. But the reality is this was the peak of that market as the Hunt Brothers efforts to corner the market that had really gone on during 1979, hit full steam in early 1980. Uh, Silver Thursday would come in March of 1980. So this was really that time period, that week, things were really bubbling and heating up, overheating, one would say. So, you know, we know as folks who follow the market, you know, anybody who follows the market knows how momentous that, uh, how important that time was because, you know, the regulations that came out of the crash, the, you know, seven, eight years later, nine years later, you had the sale of the Nelson Bunker Hunt collection of ancient and other coins because, you know, they had gone bankrupt because of the the play to control silver. It's a major moment in numismatic and financial history, and it was happening uh, this week back in 1980 in any event. So I, I thought that was really cool. I think so too. I mean, because that's definitely a historic point that we have to uh, keep in mind because history does, can, and might repeat itself depending upon what you believe on that. So very definitely good because uh, we appreciate you uh, ferreting out the uh, information uh, regarding that in back in 1980. But let's move up the uh, clock a little bit here, and let's take it back to just about a dozen, now nah, 13 years ago now, lucky 13. Seems to me that's around the time that the New York show got started. Well, it did for me, right? So I chose 2009 because that was the first year I got to go to the New York International. Now, the New York International has been going on since 1971, 50 years now. But, you know, I joined Coin World full time in 2004. My first New York show was 2009. And uh, I'll never forget, you know, getting to the Waldorf and just being in awe of the, uh, you know, the grandeur and the the beauty and majesty and all that. And even so much as getting a, um, I got upgraded to a massive suite in the towers that was like big enough. I could have had like 20 people over. I mean, it was, it was crazy. <laughs> um, so, but you know, the show is in the internet intercontinental Barclay now this starting this year after being at the grand Hyatt for a handful of years, it takes some getting used to when you go to a new location. So I chose that year anyway because of the connection and having just been to New York. And the big news on that cover was our colleague Paul Joke's story about the uh, a collector finding a Cheerios dollar in circulation. And this had been confirmed by the grading service Annex. Uh, collector Charles Hudson found this Sacagawea dollar inside uh, a roll of coins uh, Charles got from a bank. And, um, you know, you're going Cheerios dollar. What's, 
what does the serial have to do with the dollar coin? Well, this was the first circulated example of the Cheerios dollar encapsulated by any major grading service. Uh, the story is back when the dollar coin, the Sacagawea dollar coin was being introduced and promoted that General Mills and the U.S. Treasury partnered to promote Cheerios by running a promotion where every, I think, 100 boxes had a, had a dollar in it, and there were 5,500 pieces, and um, they were randomly inserted inside boxes of Cheerios. Uh, otherwise, there was Lincoln cents dated 2000. You know, so every box had a, a cent. If it didn't have a cent, it had a dollar. Most had the cent. Well, there was a very specific variety dye used to make these cents. And uh, Thomas Delore, I believe, was the one who discovered that, that there's it's just something in the, the tail feathers of the eagle and all that that distinguished this from the regular circulation strike. Somebody got this coin back in, in the box of cereal and spent it not knowing, you know, they weren't a collector. They, they didn't know. And they put it out into circulation, released it back into the wild as it were. And, uh, this collector found it, recognized it for what it was and what it is. And, uh, you know, with only 5,500 made, that's, a gotta be the lowest mintage circulating coin in modern U.S. Uh, history. And, uh, you know, it's probably, I know the coin is on the top 100 modern coins book published by Whitman. I don't know the ranking, but, you know, that might be a, a sleeper piece. Certainly most of them are, uh, were kept aside. Most of them are in, you know, high grades because they were minted and put into these packages. They didn't enter circulation. So it's kind of fun that this was a, a, an example that actually was spent as money as coins are intended to. It represents so much more than just the new dollar coin. It's this story of how the treasury, the mint, promoted it and, uh, you know, modern commerce and, and all that. And, and it's a fun find. Don't we all love to think about finding some rarity in, in pocket change? So that to me was the cool story of this issue. That's great because, uh, you know, it is, like you say, you look for something that you can find and that's right there for you. Our letters page had some pretty lengthy letters here, but uh, they were pretty obviously fired up about some of the things that were going on in the world. Our first letter comes from Rex Stark out of uh, Gardner, Mass, spelled differently than you, and it says, they're everywhere. I was very impressed with the series on Chinese counterfeits that had been run. I thought it wise to remind readers that these fakes are not just a problem on the internet or at Chinese tourist markets. The massive quantities being made assures that these pieces will reach the retail market worldwide. I was in London a few weeks ago and stopped at the weekly Covent Market, and the market is very popular with tourists and offers a wide selection of moderately priced jewelry, silver collectibles, coins, and more. There was a dealer there selling mostly inexpensive ceramics and possibly fake antiquities, but prominently displayed on his table was a small pile of counterfeit Morgan dollars and other crown-sized coins. Of course, he told me they were genuine. 
The scenario is without a doubt being repeated at flea markets and inexpensive antique shows in large cities and principal tourist areas all over the world, including, of course, right here in the United States. There was another letter that dealt with counterfeits. It's called More Ire Over Counterfeits. With all the furor over counterfeit coins and counterfeit slabs, I find it quite ironic that one of the largest third-party graders now chooses to encapsulate Chinese coins and then go as far as having the information in the slab in Chinese script also. Doesn't that make it just a tad easier for our counterfeiting buddies in China to really phony up everything in their nefarious enterprises? Will these slabs require a certified acceptance corp type translation of the lettering? Will this nonsense ever stop? I can agree with the gentleman who suggested that third-party graders stamp any counterfeit coins submitted to them with copier counterfeit and send the coins to the Secret Service after sending the submitter a receipt for the phony coin. Take that up with your friendly neighborhood coin dealer. And that's Tom Natale, address withhold. So you can see they were truly fired up. One more letter is National Parks Coin Concerns. Representative Michael Castle has done it to us again. Thanks to him, we will now have 11 years of National Park quarter dollars to contend with. How long will the quarter be used and abused for Castle's ego? He's obviously not a coin collector. A good percentage of the state quarter dollar designs are awful. The reduced Washington design and all of the extra inscriptions on the obverse make the coin too busy. They also minimize Washington's importance. He's just there for the ride. I sincerely hope that the National Park ideas keep the park theme on the reverse, similar to the 1976 Bicentennial Quarters, which were designed well enough to not affect the inscriptions and the Washington design. Personally, I'd like to see the National Park's theme used on the reverse of the half-dollar coins, since they're bigger. Vending machines should take the half dollars as well. They're not that big. That's from Wayne Pearson, Union City, Indiana. And of course, this comes at a time when we're about to search out the new circulating designs on the quarter dollars. So those are the letters from our issue of January 19th of 2009. It's funny that you mentioned Rex Stark there because I met him at the fun show and um, he had some cool stuff there, including a yap stone. So, and I posted that on Facebook and uh, it's, um, you know, he, he's a longtime dealer. And uh, certainly as soon as you said that name, and of course I had to tell him, even though he's, he's a few years older than me that, well, you know, I spell it the right way. <laughs> I see. I see. I see. Okay. I see what you did there. So anyway, uh, that, that was cool. Um, it's all, I love delving back into these and seeing what was happening, you know, in hindsight. Yes. I would have loved to have had the national park quarters of the designs on a half dollar, but nobody uses half dollars now. And certainly the way the, um, the federal reserve and the mint, uh, don't, work together to get things cooperating. And, you know, there was a huge effort back when the uh, state quarter program came out, but the quarter was actually circulating, right? I mean, the, you know, the quarter you used in commerce and you go to Walmart, you go to Walgreens, whatever, there's a pile of them in, in the till. And, uh, I was working at Walgreens at the time, actually, and in high school and college, and we didn't have, you know, that, that extra slot there at the end for half dollars and dollars was 
you know, as soon as we get those in, we try to get rid of them. <laughs> so it's a nice idea in theory. Um, I don't know in practicality that it would have worked or would have gotten people using them, uh, you know, the way that the Kennedy half dollar was was beloved and cherished and, and held out of circulation because of the uh, mourning for the president. But um, I just don't see that that demand existing for half dollar usage even if the national park design had designs had appeared on them. So anyway, that's the big look back. We, we always have fun. Now I need to look back at the trivia question that we asked that I asked you and, and uh, everybody out there in honor of Harvey stack, the newly departed Harvey stack, you know, mentioned that Harvey was, um, one of the driving forces behind the state quarter program, but Harvey sought inspiration or took inspiration from some other nation. And and the first part of that question was which nation did he get inspired by which nation inspired the American state quarter program? And then the bonus part or second part of the question was name a couple nations that have since then have done a similar issue honoring geopolitical entities, states, provinces, the like. So uh, you, I think, know the first part. I am not sure about the second part. Now is your chance to prove me right or wrong. I'm going to prove you right because, yeah, the first part of it, when you asked the question, I knew about it immediately. I'd read about it had found some interest in it, and or at least I believe I'm right. I believe it had to refer to the uh, Dominions of Canada, our neighbor to the north. I think Canada had a program very similar to that. As far as the other countries, uh, you know, truthfully, I would have had to look it up, and I really don't think that's fair. This was not an open, open book test. I'm not even going to hazard to guess. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I think one of the things... People don't realize in this country, I think about this when I was growing up, that we had to learn about the 50 states or, yeah, it was still 50 states when I was a kid. <laughs> or 48. But uh, we had to learn about the 50 states. But nowhere did we ever understand that any other countries, when we looked at a world map, every country was whole. It wasn't divided in any way. And so it wasn't until much later that we realized, like Mexico, like there's Sonora and there's Jalisco and all the different locations so I think Mexico might be one of them, but I don't really know. You are so good to get Canada. That was the correct answer there. Uh, of course, we're referring to the 1992 series of 25-cent coins for the provinces and um, other territories. That's it, the territories. Uh, and you are also correct, one of the several places that have done uh, a state series or provincial series or whatever, uh, Mexico was among those. Mexico did two series of those in the you know mid 2000s, 2006 to 2010 area. They did two different programs, uh, 100 pesos coins. Also on the list, you had Australia in 2001 issuing 20 cent and 50 cent coins for the centennial of a confederation, showing all the different states or provinces, whatever they are there. I think they're territories. Um, you have the territory, New South Wales and, and the like. Uh, you also have 
Uh, Japan did a program honoring all 47 of its prefectures. You have Germany did the Bundeslander series, 18 different coins, I think it was, from 2006 to present. In fact, I was it was there in Berlin at 2006, my first World Money Fair, that they launched the first coin in the series. And the last coin in the series, I believe, comes out this year or next. They do one a year, which is, a, that's a long drawn out thing on a two euro coin. Japan did prefectures four or five or six or so a year over the course of six to eight years. Poland, Russia have, have honored, um, cities and, and towns and various places in circulating designs. Uh, there are others that you could add to the list uh, for sure, but probably, you know, Japan and Mexico are the most well-known maybe. And, and I'm probably forgetting some here as, as we say this, but the idea was to just get you thinking about and, and understanding that there are other similar programs out there from around the world. I think France did a, a non-circulating or, or maybe limited mintage circulation silver coins in that regard. There's just so many options out there and ways uh, that nations celebrate their own places and, and uniqueness. So for sure, you uh, good for you. You got that Right. Uh, I will give that to you, uh, even though, you know, you only had one other place. Uh, that's that's good enough for government work. Good, good enough for me. Fresh off of New York. My mind still drifts there. My mind's is still stuck in New York. So basically, you're in a New York state of mind. That's right. Apologies um, to Billy Joel. Yes. I'm not going to even try to pull some of those lyrics out. But um, so there's a famous American coin designer, an artist, who created some public art in New York City. And, you know, I love going to see public art in general, but especially when it's by a coin designer, you get a sense of understanding their abilities beyond the limited depth of a the coin canvas. As I thought about this, I was aware of one major piece of uh, sculpture by this artist. It hadn't registered. I hadn't remembered about the second piece of art. So the question for everyone out there this week is what famous American artist who's designed U.S. coins has a famous artwork, uh, public sculpture, public piece of art, I should say, in New York City, what is it? And the bonus question is, can you name both of them two works there? And, you know, it's it's keep us on that New York state of mind. So that's where we are for this week's question. Okay, so I'm starting to eliminate. Let's see. Andy Warhol, no. Grandma Moses, no. Grant Wood, probably not. Yeah, I'll have to do a little thinking on that one. Yeah, yeah. Just, you know, put on your thinking cap. You have till next episode, uh, everybody out there, Larry and all the listeners. Uh, and, you know, if you get a chance, if you've not been to New York City, when you get a chance to go, if you get a chance, you should go see uh, some of this and, and maybe incorporate coin designer art in your travels. There's several opportunities around the country, some here in Missouri I could talk about. Like I say, it's fun to see what exist, especially when, you know, this day and age, when we talk about monuments and their place in public 
spaces and history. These, uh, I think, are firmly entrenched um, and um, there's meaning to them. So check them out. We'll have the answer next week, uh, next episode. Right now, I want to take this time once again to thank Steve Davis and Numismatic Auctions, LLC. They've got auction number 66 coming up very soon. Absentee bidding is going to be closing on January 31st. The internet bidding will close after that, February 7th through the 11th. And we appreciate their support of the, support of the Coin World podcast. want you to check them out, Numismatic Auctions, LLC, and see all the uh, over 3,300 lots that are going to be offered in just this sale alone. So you should bookmark that site for the future sales as well. So once again, there's, there's something for everybody there. And I, that means you. Yeah. And I almost, um, I, I hate to tell everybody go there because now maybe what I want to bid on is gonna, I'm going to have to pay a little more for it, but Hey, that's life. Uh, you know, we do appreciate it. And, uh, them, them's the breaks with the hobby. There's, there's nobody can get everything and, uh, you know, there's can't see it all, but my gosh, boy, check it out. So, but until then, until next time, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. This episode of the Coin World Podcast is sponsored by Numismatic Auctions. Numismatic Auctions is proud to announce auction sale number 66, featuring the Robert H. Colgrove and Grand Blanc collections, along with many other fine consignments. With nearly 3,300 lots total of rare U.S., Canadian, ancient, and world coins, paper, and exonumia, this auction has something for everyone. View the auction sale number 66 catalog at numismaticauctionsllc.com. Featured items of this sale include over 1,000 lots of U.S. coins, paper, and exonumia, plus Lincoln memorabilia, rare Chinese ancient to republic and modern coins, paper and coinage dies, a fantastic offering of Russian coins, paper money, and medals, and a specialized, high-grade offering of hundreds of rare Condor tokens and world exonumia. Absentee bids are now being accepted through January 31, 2022. Internet bidding closes February 7th through 11th, 2022. Visit Numismatic Auctions LLC to view the auction lots and get more information.